Chapter One of Tom Slade on the River. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tom Slade on the River by Percy Keith Fitzhugh. Chapter One The First Arrival. But suppose they shouldn't come? Son, when I was out in Colorado in a place we called Devil's Pass, I got a grizzly backed up against a ledge one day, and having only one bullet, twas a case of me or him, as you might say. My partner, Simon Gurthy, who likewise didn't have no bullets, count of being stripped with the engines, he says, Supposing you don't fetch him? I says, Supposing I do. Jeb Rushmore, with methodical accuracy, spat at a sapling nearby. "'And did you?' asked his listener. Jeb spat again with leisurely deliberation. "'And I did,' said he. "'You always hit, don't you, Jeb?' "'Pretty near.' The boy edged along the log on which they were sitting and looked up admiringly into the wrinkled, weather-beaten face. A smile, which did not altogether penetrate through the drooping gray moustache, was visible enough in the twinkling eyes, and drew the wrinkles about them like sun-rays. "'They'll come,' said he. The boy was satisfied, for he had absolute confidence that his companion could not make a mistake. "'But suppose you hadn't hit him, I mean, fetched him.' "'Son, what you got to do, you do. "'When I told General Custer once that we'd get picked off like cherries off in a tree "'if we tried rushing a pack of Sioux that was in ambush, he says, "'Jeb, maybe it can't be done. I ain't saying. "'But just the same, we got to do it. "'Some of us got dropped, but we done it.' "'Did General Custer call you by your first name?' "'Same as you do.' This was too much for the little fellow. Gee, it must have been great to have General Custer call you by your first name. Well, now, I've been thinking twas pretty fine this winter having you call me by my first name and keeping me company here. We've got to be close pards, me and you, ain't we, son? Gee, I'm almost sorry they're coming. Kind of. They were certainly coming in chunks, as Roy Blakely would have said, and before night the camp would be a veritable beehive. All summer troops would be coming and going, but just now the opening rush was at hand, and the exodus from eastern towns and cities, following a closing of schools, would go far to fill the camp even to its generous capacity, before this Saturday's sun had set. The Bridgeboro troop from the home town of the camp's generous founder, Mr. John Temple, would arrive sometime in the afternoon, with bells on, according to the postcard, which little Raymond Hollister had brought up from the post office the day before. They were cruising up the Hudson to Catskill Landing in their cabin launch, The Good Turn, and would hike it up through Leeds to the camp. The card was postmarked Poughkeepsie, and read, Desert Island of Poughkeepsie, Longitude 23, Latitude 40-11. Put in here for gasoline and ice cream soda. Natives friendly. Heavy gales. Raining in sheets and pillowcases. Mutiny on board. 
Pee-wee Harris, N.G. Mariner, put in irons for stealing peanuts from galley. Boarded by pirates below Peekskill. Coming north with bells on. Reach camp Saturday late. All's well with a yo-heave-ho, my lads. That sounds like Roy Blakely, Raymond had said to his companion. Does sound kind of like his nonsense, the camp manager had answered. All through the long winter months, Raymond had lived at the big camp with no other companion than Jeb Rushmore. They had made their headquarters in Jeb's cabin, the other cabins and the big pavilion being shut tight. Raymond had often thought how like the pictures of Valley Forge this vacant clearing in the woods looked in its covering of snow. And sometimes, when Jeb was busy writing letters, it was a terrible job for Jeb to write letters. The little fellow had been lonesome. But he had gained in weight, he had slept like a bear, he had ceased entirely to cough, and he ate. There is no way to describe how he ate. In short, a great fight had been fought out in the lonely camp that winter, and little Raymond Hollister had won it. He could trudge into the village and back without minding it now, and he could raise the big flag with one hand, just the coming summer to top off with, and he would be well. Raymond lived down the Hudson a ways, and he had come to Temple Camp with his troop the previous summer. His patrol leader, Gary Everson, had won the Silver Cross, which, according to the rule of the camp, entitled him and his companions to remain three extra weeks. And when Mr. John Temple had heard of Raymond's ill health from the Bridgeboro boys on their return from camp, he had called in his stenographer and sent a couple of home runs over the plate in the form of two letters, one to Raymond's grandmother, telling her that she had guessed wrong when she had guessed that Raymond would have to go to an orphan asylum when he came back, and the other enclosing a check to Jeb Rushmore and telling him that Raymond would stay with him for the winter, and to please see to it that he had everything he needed. That was in the previous autumn. Jeb had gotten out his bespattered, pyramid-shaped ink bottle, and his atrocious pen, and laboriously scrawled his signature on the back of the check, and had it cashed in leads. He had kept a little roll of bills carefully in his pocket all winter, buying such things for Raymond as were needed. And as the roll grew thinner, Raymond had grown stouter, until now, in the spring, he weighed ninety-one pounds, and the roll was all gone except the elastic band. It seemed a pity that just at the opening of the new season he should have to think of going home, and perhaps to an orphan asylum. But if he had entertained any wild hope that some fortunate circumstance might prolong his stay into the open season, it had been dissipated when word had come that the Temples had gone to South America. Either John Temple had forgotten about the boy up in the lonely camp, or else he felt that he had done as much for him as could be expected. Raymond might still remain for two weeks of the new season, as any scout might do, but then he would be at the end of his rope. For the rule of Temple Camp was that any scout or troop of scouts might spend two weeks at the camp free of all cost. If a scout won an honor medal, it entitled his whole troop to additional time, the time dependent on the nature of the award. No scout might remain at camp longer than two weeks, except in accordance with this provision. 
but permission might be granted on the recommendation of one of the trustees for a scout to board at camp for a longer time, if there were good reason. One day, however, a registered letter had come for Jeb. It contained fifty dollars and a slip of paper bearing only the words, For Raymond Hollister to stay until September 1st. So he remembered about you after all, Jeb had said, as pleased as Raymond himself. I kinder knowed he would. If he ain't a trustee, Jeb always said trusty when he meant trustee, and got rights, God, I don't know who has. They was just going on the boat, I reckon, when it popped into his head like a dose of buckshot, and he sent it right from the wharf. And I don't have to get out my ink bottle and my old double-barreled pen to endorse neither. There they were, two twenties and a ten. To Raymond they seemed like a fortune, as he watched Jeb fold them up and slip them into his homemade buckskin wallet. All this had happened before this auspicious Saturday but the dispelling of Raymond's fears had given rise to new apprehensions. "'Even if they come,' said he, "'maybe Gary won't be with them. Maybe they won't stop for him.' Gary Everson was all that was left of the little troop he had striven to keep together the previous summer, and the Bridgeboro troop had promised to stop for him and bring him along. "'And then again maybe they will,' laughed Jeb. "'Who do you think will be the first to get here, Jeb?' Maybe them lads from South New Jersey, maybe the Pennsylvania youngsters, said Jeb, consulting his list from the homemade buckskin wallet. The trustees kept these lists in the neatest and most approved manner, but Jeb had a system of record-keeping all his own. Let's see now. There's that troop of the red-headed boy from Maryland. Remember him, don't you? They'll be coming all week, more'n like. Seems only like yesterday. Like that old hill over there was covered with snow. Remember how me and you watched it? We had a rough winter of it, didn't we? Here, let me feel your muscle again now. Gee williger! Getting to be a regular Samson, ain't you? Now that it's time for them to come, said Raymond slowly, I'm almost sorry, kind of. It was dandy being alone here with you. Jeb slapped him on the shoulder and smiled again that smile that drew the wrinkles like sun rays around his twinkling eyes and went about his work of preparation. Perhaps he too, rough old scout that he was, felt that it had been dandy having little Raymond alone with him through those long cold winter months. All day long Raymond kept his gaze across Black Lake, for he knew that the Bridgeboro boys hiking it from the Hudson, would come that way. But the hours of the afternoon passed, and there were no arrivals. The hills surrounding the camp began to darken in the twilight, save for the crimson tinge upon their summits from the dying sun. The dark waters of the lake grew more somber in the twilight, and the still solemnity of evening, which was nowhere more gloomy and impressive than at this lakeside camp in the hills, fell upon the scene, and cast its spell upon the lonely boy, as it always did. But no one came. Jeb Rushmore strolled down to where Raymond sat on the rough bench outside the provision camp, facing the lake. Still watching? If you say so, I'll light a lantern, and we'll tow a couple of skips across and wait on the other side. I wasn't thinking about them just now, Jeb. 
I was looking at those birds. High up through the fading twilight, a bird sped above the lake toward the south. Its course was straight as an arrow. Above it, a larger bird hovered and circled, but the smaller bird went straight upon its way, as if bent upon some important mission. Then, suddenly, the larger bird swooped, and there was only the one object left in the dim, vast sky, where a moment before there had been two. "'Get me my rifle,' said Jeb. As Raymond hurried back with it, he could see the wings of the big bird flapping in the fury of its murderous work. What was going on up there he could only picture in his mind's eye. But the thought of that smaller bird hurrying on its harmless errand, homeward to its nest, perhaps, and waylaid and murdered up there in the lonely half-darkness, troubled him. And his hand trembled perceptibly as he handed the weapon to Jeb. You always hit em, fetch em, don't you? he asked anxiously. Pretty near. The sharp report rang out and echoed from the surrounding hills. Even before it died away, there lay at Raymond's feet a hawk, quite dead, while, through the dim light, in a pitiably futile effort to fly, the smaller bird, a vivid speck of white in the fading twilight, fluttered to the ground. It proved to be a white pigeon, its feathers ruffled and stained with blood, and several of the stiffer feathers of the tail were gone entirely. One wing drooped as the bird stumbled weakly about, and an area of its neck was bare with the feathers that had been torn away. It seemed odd to Raymond that the poor stricken thing should resume its clumsy strut, poking its head this way and that, even in its weakness, and after such a cruel experience. But what he noticed particularly was a metal ring around the bird's leg, from which hung a little transparent tube, like a large medical capsule, with something inside it. Look, Jeb, said he, what's that? Jeb lifted the bird carefully, folding the drooping wing into place, and removed the little tube. You fetched him anyway, didn't you, Jeb? Cause I had to, see? We won't have to kill it, will we, Jeb? Reckon not. He don't seem to be suffering much of any. Just shook up, as the feller says. Lucky he fell amongst friends. Let's see what he's brought us. He's one of them carriers, son. Raymond said nothing, but watched eagerly as Jeb, leisurely and without any excitement, opened the tiny receptacle and unrolled a piece of paper. The boy knew well enough what carrier pigeons were, and he was eager to know the purport of that little roll of script but even in his excitement there lingered in his mind the picture of that fateful little messenger, intent upon its errand, struck down by the ruthless bandit of the air. He was glad the hawk was dead. Let's hear what he's got to say for himself, son. You just read it. The paper was thin and about the size of a dollar bill. It had been folded lengthwise and then rolled up. It read, Come right away. Governor Hurt. Serious. Can't leave. Will try to get to nearest village, but am afraid to leave now. He fell and is bleeding bad. Think there's something else the matter, too. Spotty died or would send. Jeff. Raymond gazed for a moment at Jeb, then down at the dead hawk, 
then at the pigeon, which Jeb still held, stroking it gently. "'It'll never be delivered now, son, "'cause nobody except this little feller knows where he come from nor where he was going, do they, Pidge?' "'But somebody's dying,' said Raymond. "'Sure enough, but we don't know who it is nor where he is, "'nor where his friends is, neither. "'And this here messenger here won't tell us. "'He's got his own troubles. "'That there hawk done more mischief than he thought for.' For a few moments there was silence, and Raymond gazed up into the trackless, darkening sky through which this urgent call for help had been borne. Where had it come from? For whom was it intended? Then he looked down at the limp body of the bird, whose cruel, bloody work had snatched the last faint hope of succor from someone who lay dying. I'm glad you kill, uh, fetched him anyway, said he. The thought of those two unknown persons, the stricken one and his frightened companion, waiting all in vain for the help which that faithful messenger of the air should summon, and of that steadfast little emissary, on which so much depended, fallen here into strange hands, sobered and yet agitated the boy, and he was silent in the utter helplessness of doing anything. Now, if you could only tell where you was going, where you was coming from, Pidge, we'd be much obliged, said Jeb. But you wouldn't, would you? he added, stroking the bird. And I ain't much of a hand at picking trails in the air, being as I growed up on the hard ground. Nobody can follow trails in the air, said Raymond, by way of comforting Jeb. Gee, nobody could do that. But it's terrible, isn't it? He looked up into the sky again, as if he hoped it might still show some sign of path or trail. And as he did so, a loud bark, a sort of harsh, Ha! Ha! came through the growing darkness from across the lake, and reverberated in swelling chorus from the frowning heights round about. Then there was a long plaintive bellow, which died away as softly and as gradually as the day itself dies and this again was followed, as it seemed, by the happy music of applauding hands, as if in acknowledgment of the long-echoed refrain. "'Oh, they're here! They're here!' cried Raymond. "'That was the silver fox call, and the elks, and Gary's with them. He made that beaver call to let me know.' Just at that moment the dense brush across the lake parted, and a boy, bareheaded and wearing a gray flannel shirt, emerged on the shore. "'Oh, Tom! It's Tom Slade!' cried Raymond, forgetting all else in his ecstasy. "'Hello, Tom! You big! You big!' But he couldn't think of any epithet to fit the occasion. End of chapter 1